excuse me. I've done a lot of speaking this week and a lot of singing by God's grace. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4? find ourselves in Romans chapter 4, and today, looking at verses 9 through 12. Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. And would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the inspired and errant and infallible Word of God? Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. This is the very Word of God. Let's give it our attention. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. When I am not reading theology and I need something else to read, I will often uh, turn to a mystery novel, Uh, whether that is Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot or G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown, or even Louisa Penny's Inspector Gamache. I'm fascinated uh, by the way in which these characters go about their work of solving mysteries. And something that you discover along the way in a good mystery story is that a good detective pays attention not just to the details but to the way that those details have unfolded. He gives special attention to the sequence of the events. What happened when and where, and whether it preceded or followed something else. The sequence of events is important for understanding the chain of cause and effect. And that can be true not just of criminal investigation. That can be true of biblical exegesis, which in some sense is an investigative work. Peter tells us uh, that the prophets of old searched the Scriptures, seeking to discern what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Imagine those prophets searching their own inspired writings to try to discern about the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Jesus said to the Jews that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The problem was not with their searching of the Scriptures. The problem was, as Paul says, that they searched the Scriptures and read the Scriptures as with a veil over their eyes so that they could not see how the Scriptures were leading them to Jesus and bearing witness about Jesus. We should be people who approach our Bibles investigating them and searching the Scriptures. But in our searching of the Scriptures, it's important that we sometimes pay extra close attention to the sequence of events, to the way that things have unfolded in the course of redemptive history, because they can give us insight into the way in which God works and how we should interpret certain events. In the passage that is before us today, Paul, like a good investigator, has searched the Scriptures, and he shows us the importance of the sequence of events in Abraham's life, and how that sequence of events is important for our understanding of justification by faith alone. Okay, well, where are we in Paul's argument? We are picking things up here in the middle of his unfolding thought. And so let me just briefly jog your memory and help remind you where we are. You'll remember that at the end of chapter 3, Paul, like a good teacher, told us in advance, in sort of a summary form, what he was going to tell us in detail in chapter 4. And there were three parts to that. He, he told us what he was going to tell us. Now he tells us, and he's going to tell us what he told us. So there were three parts to his telling us what he was going to tell us. The first part was that the gospel, the preaching of the good news, excludes all boasting. It excludes this boasting by a law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The second thing he told us he was going to tell us is that God is both the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. Since God is one who will justify both the circumcised and the uncircumcised by faith, we know that the same God is God of both. And the third thing he told us he was going to tell us is that this doctrine of justification by faith alone does not overthrow the law. On the contrary, he says, it establishes it and upholds it. Now, last week we began to look at chapter 4, and we saw how Paul put the experience of Abraham before us as an example of that first point, that Abraham had nothing to boast about before God, because Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now today, Paul is going to expound and unfold on that second point, that God is both the God of the Jews and the Gentiles, because there's only one God. This one God justifies the circumcised and the uncircumcised through faith. And once again, to help make that point, he appeals to the experience of Father Abraham, so that through Abraham's experience, we might learn what it means to be justified by faith. We might learn how important that is for us today as believers, 
who share in the faith of Abraham and walk in his steps. And so to get at that, let me once again just give you three points to help sort of guide your thinking as we work our way through this passage of Scripture. The first is this, the sequence of righteousness by faith. We'll see the sequence in verses 9 through 10 as Paul sets before us the significance of the way these events unfold. Secondly, we're going to look at the sign of righteousness by faith in verse 11. As Paul rehearses what the scriptures teach about the sign of circumcision that was given to Abraham as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. The sequence and the sign. And finally, we're going to look at the specimen of righteousness by faith in verse 12. As Paul unpacks the significance of Abraham's experience for us and how he functions as a spiritual father of all those who believe. So the sequence, the sign, and the specimen of righteousness by faith. As we consider this first point, the sequence of events, you'll see that Paul lays it out in verses 9 through 10 as he asks these questions. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, the very first thing we should be asking is what blessing is he talking about? He says, is this blessing then only for them circumcised? What, what blessing is he talking about? Well, he's talking about that blessing that he's just recounted through David. Look back just a couple of verses to verse 6 and following. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The blessing is the blessing of justification by faith, that God counts righteousness apart from works, that God covers sins and that he forgives them and that he does not count them against us. That is the blessing that he's talking about. And Paul's asking, does that blessing, that blessing of justification by faith alone, is that a blessing that's only for the Jewish people? Is that a blessing that is only for those who are circumcised? Or is that a blessing that also belongs to the uncircumcised? Is it a blessing that belongs to the Gentiles? Because we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Is that experience of Abraham's, of being counted righteous by faith, is that only for the Jewish people or is it also for the world? And that's where Paul's investigative mind comes into play because he begins to lay out the sequence of events for us. He asks, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or was it after he was circumcised? That is to say, when Abraham gained this right standing before God, when he was justified, when he was declared righteous, when he believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness, when did that happen? Did that happen before he was circumcised? Or did it happen after he was circumcised? Now, before we answer it, let's just ask the question, why is this so important for Paul? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. First, because for the Jewish people, circumcision was incredibly important. Uh, circumcision was, after all, 
a divinely ordained rite. It was a ceremony that God had given that all the males among Israel were to be circumcised on the eighth day. And this was the rite that formally admitted someone into membership in God's covenant community. If you did not have the sign of circumcision or did not come up from a family of the circumcised, you did not belong to God's covenant people, so much so that those who were outside of God's covenant could simply be referred to as the uncircumcised, those who do not belong. So you can see why when Paul says that through the gospel, the uncircumcised now belong, that's kind of a big deal. The second reason why Paul raises this question about whether Abraham's justification came before or after his circumcision is because if Abraham was justified on the basis of something he did by his obedience to God in circumcision, then he would have something to boast about. He was obedient. He circumcised himself, and he circumcised his sons, and therefore God justified him. No. That's not what happened. Paul, in raising the question, immediately answers it. It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. Before he was circumcised, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. We looked at that event uh, last week from Genesis, uh, and where God makes that path of blood through the animals, and then he puts Abraham to sleep. What did Abraham do? He believed God, and he slept. And God took the oath that he would fulfill these promises. And all of that was before he was circumcised. His circumcision came way after. By Jewish reckoning, it came 29 years later. He was justified by faith all that time. But 29 years later, God gave him the rite of circumcision. The sequence matters. It matters because it's yet another proof that Abraham was not forgiven. He was not accounted righteous because of something he had done. It was because he believed God's word of promise. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Basically, when it came to his justification, Abraham received it not like his Jewish progeny would, on the basis of faith after being circumcised. He actually received it like a Gentile would before he was circumcised. Well, okay. I suppose you are probably beginning to see how a Jew might think then. Well, then what was the value of circumcision? If that's true, then why bother giving Abraham this sign? Why did God give him that right? And that's what we need to see next. We've seen the sequence of righteousness by faith. Now let's look at the sign and the seal of righteousness by faith. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You see, the Jews prided themselves in their circumcision. But Paul is saying, if you do that, if you pride yourself in your circumcision, you're missing the whole point. You are misunderstanding 
why God gave you circumcision in the first place. The Bible says that Abraham received circumcision as a sign. It's not something that Paul's just coming up with on his own. Paul is reading this from the Scriptures, from Genesis 17.10, where God said, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and this shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. This sign functioned as a seal, the Bible says. He gave it as a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. We don't use that language of sealing as much today, but what does a seal do? Well, a seal attests to something. It confirms something as being authentic. Tomorrow, I am going to put a stamp on a letter that contains a signed marriage certificate. And in this marriage certificate, there is a seal. There's a seal of the clerk of the Alachua County Courthouse. It is sealing that this is the real deal. When God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, he was adding to his promise a sign that would function as a seal to those who believed. It was a seal that God was going to be faithful to his word of promise. Now, did God need to add that sign? Before God gave the sign, was God's word not good? Of course it was good. But God added the sign as a seal to encourage the faith of his people. He didn't add it for his own sake. He added it for Abraham's sake. Let me try to illustrate this for you. In God's kind providence, I think he's given to our church family a wonderful illustration of this this week. Many of you attended a wedding this week, uh, as did I. In fact, some of you are visiting today because you came for that wedding, and we welcome you. I Presumably, you didn't come to hear me preach. You came to see and be a witness to that covenant of marriage. Now, in that covenant ceremony, the bride and the groom exchanged rings. What were they doing? They were giving to each other a sign, a visible symbol of their love and of their commitment to the relationship. I had a very close-up view to that. and It was beautiful. Now, here's the point I want to make. The bride... Emma, would be wrong to confuse the ring with the relationship, wouldn't she? The ring is not the relationship. And I can tell you with 100% certainty that if you go and ask her whether she'd have Isaac or whether she'd have the ring that he gave her, she's going to tell you 100% of the time, I want Isaac. Because it's about the relationship It's not the sign of the relationship that's the most important thing. It's the relationship itself. Now, I I trust you understand that does not mean that she doesn't want the sign. That she doesn't want the ring. Of course she wants the ring. Because the ring is a gift from her husband. It's a token of his love. It's a token of his commitment to her. Of course she wants it. Because if she ever struggles or doubts or is discouraged, 
she can look at that ring on her finger and she can say with certainty, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He gave me this ring. He loves me. Now, if you've ever misplaced or lost your wedding ring, you know that to be true. Once upon a time, I could do a few pull-ups. And I had this pull-up bar that would attach to my door, but it would really hurt my finger to do pull-ups with my ring on. And so one time I took my ring off and I set it up on the door frame. And then I got a phone call in the middle of pull, you know, in the middle of pull-ups. And I went and answered the phone and I forgot about it. And I took the pull-up bar down. And for a week, I was searching all over for my wedding ring. Now, when I lost my wedding ring, did that mean I wasn't married anymore? Did that mean my wife no longer loved me? Did that, did that mean my vows were no good? No. The relationship was the thing. And yet I missed the ring because of what it symbolized. Thankfully, the next week on back day, um, I put that pull-up bar back up <laughs> and down fell my wedding ring. And I put it on my finger and I said, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Inside of my ring, it says in Hebrew, my beloved. What is true of wedding rings was true of circumcision. Paul wants to make sure that God's people do not confuse the sign of the covenant for the covenant itself. In fact, in the case of circumcision, I want you to remember that this sign was given to remind Abraham that it would not be because of his efforts. Long before Abraham was circumcised, he believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. God told him his descendants were going to be as numerous as the stars of heaven, that they were going to be like the sand of the seashore, and God was going to give him this promised son and provide for him. And now all these years later, he has no son. Somewhere along the way, as he was growing old and his wife Sarah was barren, what did they do? They decided they were going to try to help God along. They decided that they were going to help bring about the fulfillment of the promise according to their flesh in a sinful way. And you remember how sadly Sarah gave her handmaid into Abraham's embrace. And it's only then when Abraham is attempting to bring about the promise according to his flesh that God says no. It will not be through Ishmael. I will provide the son. And to remind you of that, I'm giving you the sign of circumcision. I will do it. He gave it to him as a sign and a seal of the faith that he had. Not so that he would try to take things into his, his own efforts but that he would remember that it would be by faith alone that God would accomplish the promise. And interestingly enough, that same sign of the covenant, imagine this, was given not only to Abraham, but then to his children. The sign did not mean something different for his children. The sign signified the exact same thing that it signified to Abraham. It reminded them that God had made promises 
and it called them to faith in those promises. Now that is really important because when God gives his people signs or what we sometimes refer to as sacraments, they are not given first to be signs of what we do. They are signs of what God does. They are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. They are signs and seals of his promise. And yet while the signs are given as seals of the righteousness that comes by faith and not signs of faith itself, nevertheless, those signs are meant to draw out faith. In the same way that a wedding ring is meant to draw out love. It's meant to draw out delight in the one who receives it. So the signs that God gives are meant to draw out faith in the promises of God, but they are not a sign of faith. When Abraham or Isaac or Jacob remembered that sign in their flesh, they were meant to remember that God had promised and he would fulfill it. They were meant to look beyond circumcision to the righteousness that God would provide in his son. And let me just, as an aside, say that this is true of the new covenant signs as well. The signs of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. They are not first about your faith. They are about God's grace and promise to all who believe. We're going to have communion today. We have communion every Sunday. And when you come to the Lord's table today, you are meant to look away from yourself. You are meant to look at the signs that God gives and look to Jesus Christ. You are to contemplate His righteousness. You are to reflect on His obedience. You are to think of His sacrifice. Should you come to the supper in faith? Of course. You cannot come without faith. But the supper is not a sign of your faith. You see where I'm going with this? It's a sign of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ for you that you receive by faith. It evokes faith. It draws out faith. It elicits faith, but it's not a sign of your faith. Otherwise, when your faith wavered, how might you ever come? It's a sign of God's promise. It's a reminder that he has done all that you have failed to do and yet you might still have communion and fellowship with him. The same is true of baptism. Our Baptist brothers believe that baptism is our sign to God, and that consequently only those who believe should be baptized. Beloved, that's not the case. Baptism is not your sign to God. It's God's sign to you. It's a sign of the washing of Christ's blood that comes through his death and resurrection. It's a sign of the new covenant, of entrance into the new covenant, and it calls you to faith. It evokes faith. It elicits faith, but it's not a sign of your faith. That's why we baptize our children, because just like circumcision, this sign is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God shall call to himself. Baptism does not save our children any more than circumcision saved the children of Abraham. 
In fact, the people of God were to give this sign even to Jacob and Esau. Even when God had already said, the older shall serve the younger, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, give the sign to both. Baptism does not save our children. Circumcision did not save Abraham's children because the sign is not the thing it signifies. The ring is not the relationship. But it is a glorious sign of that relationship. And it is a sign which calls us to faith in the promises of God. Now here's why this is important for you, beloved, because as soon as you understand this, as soon as you get it, as soon as you see that baptism is not your sign to God, not your commitment to God, but God's commitment to you, then your baptism will serve you for the rest of your life. Because whenever you are doubting or discouraged or disillusioned, you can look to your baptism and you can say with confidence, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Baptism is given for our assurance. Now, there are many times in the course of my Christian life where I have had to look at my baptism and like Martin Luther say, Joel, you are a baptized man. When my faith has been faltering, when I'm falling into temptation, I can look to my baptism and I can say, you are a baptized man. God has given you his sign. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And my baptism preaches the gospel to me. All that was true of circumcision is true of baptism. Well, we've considered the sequence of things. We've considered the sign. Finally, let's consider the specimen of these things. Here, having laid out all of the groundwork, we can be brief. Paul says in verse 12, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had, before he was circumcised. Paul's conclusion is to say that Abraham is not, therefore, the father of the Jews only, or of the circumcised, but he's the father of the uncircumcised as well. What does he mean by that? Earlier in chapter 4, Paul spoke of Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. But that is not true of Gentiles, is it? The Gentiles would never speak of Abraham as my forefather according to the flesh. How was he their forefather? Well, clearly, it's in a different sense. It's not in the sense of literal progeny, but it's in a spiritual sense. It's in a sense of their shared characteristics. In Genesis chapter 4, for example, the Bible speaks about these two brothers, about Jabel and Jubal. And it says that Jabal was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Is the Bible there saying that all shepherds are the literal descendants of Jabal? Or that all musicians are the literal descendants of Jubal? Of course not. 
what makes them the fathers of these respective groups is not their literal genetic paternity, but rather these shared characteristics. That's what Paul is saying here about Abraham. The shared characteristic is he is the father of all who believe. On the one hand, he's the father of all who believe without being circumcised, of the Gentiles, because he was justified apart from being circumcised. He was justified by faith. And on the other hand, he's the father of those who are circumcised, but not not merely outwardly circumcised, but those who walk in the steps and in the faith of Abraham, whose hearts have been circumcised. You see, it's not circumcision that ultimately matters. It's not the sign, but the relationship that's signified by the sign. Now, I said earlier, I want to clear one thing up. I said earlier that we may look to our baptisms for assurance. But when I say that, please understand what I mean. I mean is that we are not just looking at the sign itself of baptism. We are looking through baptism to what it signifies. We are looking through our baptism to the gospel. If we stop trusting in the gospel and start trusting instead in the fact of our baptism, boy, we're in trouble. In fact, we will have made the same exact error that the Jews did in trusting in their circumcision. Paul says as soon as they did that, their circumcision became uncircumcision. And beloved, if you begin to trust in your baptism and not in the gospel that it preaches to you, your baptism will become unbaptism. You know, there are a thousand wedding rings in pawn shops all around Gainesville that hold no significance any longer. But if instead you are looking through the sign to the thing that it signifies, if you are looking through baptism, through circumcision to Christ, if you're looking to his work for you, if you are resting and trusting in him, then your baptism is absolutely something that you can take confidence in because it is the promise and the sign from your Savior. And if you are doing that, then you may truly say that Abraham is your father because you are walking like he did in his steps. So, beloved, do not confuse the sign for the thing signified. I hope that's become clear. I have beat that horse to death. Do not think that the sign is the relationship. Nevertheless, love the sign. Love the sign God gives. As you cling to the bridegroom, you delight in the signs that he gives. And if you do this, you may truly say, I am my beloved, and he is mine. And as you come to the supper today, that sign is there to remind you of his love and his grace and that he will never fail to keep his promises. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, how grateful we are for your word and for uh, your inspector, Paul, who has searched and inquired of the scriptures carefully so that he might demonstrate to us 
and the importance of the sequence of these events and understanding our justification is by faith and by faith alone. Lord, we thank you that you justified Abraham by faith, but we thank you that you also gave to him a sign, a sign that, that spoke of your uh, readiness to do all for him, that he had to do nothing but rest and trust in you. Lord, we thank you that you also give to us signs, that you give us the sign of baptism, you give us the sign of the Lord's Supper, and we pray that we would not trust in those signs, but in what they signify, that we would look in faith to you and so be among those children of Abraham. And so we ask all of these things then now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now as we, I'm glad that we get at least one sacrament this morning. Wish we were getting both. But we get one of these signs which the Lord has given to us for the sake of building us up in the assurance of our faith and our hope. This meal, Jesus tells us, is the sign of the new covenant in his blood. And as you come to it today, I trust you understand now that you are not to confuse this sign for your relationship with Christ, but you are to receive this sign as a sign from your bridegroom to remind you and assure you of his love and grace that he has fulfilled the promise. And just like that sign of circumcision said something through the, the, the sign itself to Abraham, these symbols say something to us. Because they are, Jesus says, the body and the blood that are given for you. The bread signifies and it represents the body of our Savior. And as it comes to us today, it comes to us torn to pieces. And the wine represents and signifies the blood of Christ. And as it comes to us, it comes to us poured out. And in these things, we can look like a bride looks at her ring on her finger and, and plays with it. We can look at these, we can hold them, we can smell them, we can taste them, and we can say, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And he has given me this sign every single week to remind me of that grace. And so as you come to this meal, come with faith, resting and trusting that God is supplying this for you. Now this meal, of course, is not for everybody. This meal is for those who, as Paul says, have been betrothed to Christ. This meal is for those whom God has put the, the wedding ring on their finger, has united them in faith to Christ. And so if you belong to Christ, if you are married to his son, right, married to Christ Jesus through faith, then you are welcome to come to this meal. And how do you know that you belong to him? Have you professed your faith in him? Have you said that you are not ashamed to belong to him? He promises that whoever calls upon his name will be saved. Have you stood before a body and, and professed your faith? He says, if you profess me before men, I'll profess you before my Father in heaven. Have you not only professed your faith, but have you been joined to his church? Do you belong to the church of Jesus Christ, to a faithful church where the gospel is being proclaimed? And are you walking in faith? and in repentance. Not are you walking perfectly, but are you walking truly in faith, hating your sins, desiring to be free of them, 
longing to be free of them and looking to Christ in desperate faith. If that's true of you, then you're welcome to come and to join us at this meal today. But if any of those things are not true of you, let me just simply ask that when the elements come, that you would just let them pass you by. But I would also call upon you not to let Christ pass you by today. He is here to be received by faith. You've heard the gospel, the good news. Believe it. And if you want to know more of what it means to follow Christ, I encourage you to come and speak with me after the service. There's nothing that I love to talk about more than that. As we come then, let's come in faith to receive this sign that the Lord has given us. And let's pray that the Lord would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, uh, we know that we don't deserve to have a seat here. And yet you invite us and call us to come. And you give us this sign as a reminder and as an assurance that we truly, through your death and resurrection, have communion with you. That this sign is not just a symbol, a memorial, but we actually have communion. We have fellowship with you because it is the relationship that is the thing. And this is a sign of that relationship. And so we pray that we would receive this sign with faith and that uh, it would evoke faith in us and evoke delight in us and love for you. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.